Hello, this is Ken Hensley, and you're listening to Catholic vs. Catholic. Tell us a little bit about yourself, if you would, please, who you are, what you believe, and how you came to believe what you believe. Okay, well, I, I was raised in a, in a home that really wasn't Christian, particularly. Um, we had a Bible in the home, but no one read it. My parents were divorced when I was quite young. Um, my father, when I was about 10 years old, began to pick my brother, sister, and I up and take us to church, and that was to the local Baptist church. And so I had an experience of standing up and going forward and giving my life to Christ when I was 12 years old or so. But it's, it's not something that really stuck in my life. I, I drifted off, and for the next 10 years, I, I, I was, uh, well, I was basically a rock and roll musician. <laughs> played in bands around Southern California, played in nightclubs professionally. And I was 22 years old when I, when I had a, I guess what you could call just a radical personal encounter with Christ and a conversion in a, non, a totally non-denominational Christian environment. A good friend of mine that I played music with for years had become a Christian, and he and I began to talk. I began to read some of the important apologetic works of the time, C.S. Lewis and whatnot, and began to read the New Testament. And I was basically converted to Christianity, to Christ, reading my Bible in my bedroom. And uh, from then, uh, I went to Bible college, got a bachelor's degree in Bible and theology. I went to Fuller Theological Seminary in Southern California and received a master's degree. I was in a doctoral program for a short time, but I ended up dropping out of that to go into the ministry. And I was an ordained Baptist pastor for 11 years. Just bring me back to the earliest memory that you can recall that has some sort of religious content. If you can talk about that, that would be good. I think that the earliest memory that I have really is just looking at the big King James family Bible that we had at home and opening it up when I was little, uh, looking at it with my brother and my sister, and just sort of knowing that this was God's word. Um, I don't think I knew anything about what it taught, or but that's an impression that I have um, early on. Um, I have a much stronger impression when I was about 12 years old um, because I was invited to go to a winter camp up in the mountains for for junior high school kids. And up at that camp, um, I had a camp counselor in my cabin, probably a 20-year-old guy, but he was a really devout Christian and just a beautiful example of of, of a Christ-like faith and life. And he had a lot of joy to him. And I, to, to be honest, I think I was kind of a morose kid, raised again in a broken home. It, it, it was a bad situation. I found out that my father had been married and divorced five times and that my mother was his fourth wife, and there was a lot of anger, there was a lot of pain in my home, and so this camp counselor was really a striking um, thing to me. And I remember up at that camp uh, going out and sitting on a, a boulder out in the snow in the winter and praying and thinking to myself then, wow, there really is a God, and, and I belong to him. Wow. I guess one of the typical questions that I ask my guest is about the dark years, rebellion, sin, indulging in sin. You don't need to go into detail, but just talk a little bit, if you could, about your dark years. Okay, well, as I mentioned a, a little while ago, my, um, my spiritual awakening at the age of 12 or so didn't really last too long. I, I became um, inspired by the Beatles. I began playing the guitar. Pretty soon I was forming a band with some of my friends. In fact, I was in a band by the time I was 10 years old. And um, that developed through my teenage years. And I drifted away from church. And I drifted away from having any spiritual life. And a lot of the usual stuff, you know, came with that as I got older. You know, openness to um, immorality, openness to drugs, openness to this and that, you know. And 
but I have to say, looking back, that I never did entirely lose my sense of what was good and what was not so good and what what was right and what was wrong, because I never felt right engaging in the kinds of things that, that often teenagers and rock and roll type people can engage in. I never felt good about it. I never felt right. I, I didn't really want to go down that road. And in many ways, I didn't. Looking back, I can see that I really held back. So the experience that I had early on really did stick in a way, although consciously I wasn't thinking about God, I wasn't thinking about Christianity, I wasn't going to church or anything like that. But when I was about 21 years old, I'm, I'm in the backyard probably smoking a hash with a friend of mine. And for some reason we were digging a hole in the ground. I think we, I, my memory is we were going to plant a little bush or we we're going to do something like that. And my friend who was an atheist, although we didn't talk about that, I didn't really know, he looked at me at one point and he said, he looked at the dirt and he said, that's all we are, dirt. And the second he said that, um, this voice inside just said, no, that's false. And I remember I, I turned my head, I looked up at him and I said, no, um, we're not just dirt. So, you know, in a way, although I drifted off and I did a lot of things that I'm not proud of, I can see that God was always there with me. There was a memory that I couldn't really entirely shake. And so when it came to the time when I heard that my friend had had become a Christian, I think there was a voice in, even then saying to me, you know this is the right thing. You know this is where you're going to go. Something like that. Hmm. Can you focus in for us on the intellectual conversion from a Protestant form of Christianity to Catholicism? Was it intellectual? Was it an intellectual uh, transition? And if so, can you talk a little bit about how you worked your way through that? Sure. Well, what happened was was this, David. I have, I was a Baptist pastor, as I said, and um, I had never even thought about the Catholic faith. There's some strange aspects to this because I was invited out to a to a Benedictine monastery years before for a spiritual retreat, and I went out there and I really loved the place. I loved the 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 spirit of it, the ambiance. I loved the uh, so, sort of the artistry of it. I'd have to say, but I loved the spirituality of it. I loved. Um, going in with the monks into the chapel and chanting the psalms and all that. And so I actually had begun through my years as a pastor um, traveling out to this monastery for retreats when I could, and yet I never once asked myself whether Catholicism could be true. I, I just kind of knew that it wasn't true, that it was kind of a some kind of a cult, although I knew they were Christians. It's a strange sort of cognitive dissonance in my mind that I loved being there, but I never said to myself, could the Catholics really have something? So Catholicism wasn't on my radar screen at all. And what happened was, almost out of the blue, I discovered that an old friend of mine, an old acquaintance from my days in seminary, whose name is Scott Hahn, quite famous now, but he was an old acquaintance of mine um, in seminary, and I, I found out he had become a Catholic. Someone in my parish uh, literally came up to me on a Sunday night and said to me, he goes, I've got this set of tapes by somebody named Scott Hahn called Answering Common Objections Against the Catholic Faith. And he wondered if I'd listen to the tapes and sort of tell him where the Catholics are wrong, because he was sort of struggling with it. And, uh, you know, proverbially, my, my, my jaw hit the floor, and I thought to myself, this cannot be the guy that I knew. At this time, it had probably been 10 years since I'd spoken to Scott Hahn. But I got the tapes. It was him. I went home, and I listened to his conversion story. And this is where it started for me. And, yes, my, my um, journey was very much intellectual. I was already open to the idea that Catholics were Christians. That was fine. And I was also open to the idea that, that when it came to spiritual life and spirituality, the Catholics had a lot to say. Because I had read some books uh, written by Protestants on the spiritual life, 
And I noticed that whenever they wanted to quote some heavyweight, um, you know, about meditation or silence or prayer or fasting or anything, um, they were, they'd be quoting St. Therese. They'd be quoting St. John of the Cross, St. Therese of Avila. They were always quoting Catholics. And so I kind of knew that Catholics had that area of, of things, uh, you know, nailed down pretty well. So the issue for me was, could the Catholic Church's claims really be true? You know, the claim that it was the church that had preserved the apostolic teaching intact and handed it down through the generations, um, all of that, because I was a Bible-only Christian entirely, you know, from top to bottom. And so in terms of an intellectual journey, I would say that it began, David, with, with this question, how in the world could someone as smart as Scott become a Catholic? And then listening to his arguments and thinking to myself, I think I can answer most of what he says here, but he's saying some things I've never heard before. And so the question was, at that point, was how could I have studied as much as I have and read as much as I have? Because I was sort of an academic type. You know, again, when I went into my doctorate, I, my master's degree was pre-doctoral studies in theology, and my plan was to become an academic. And so the question was, how could I have learned as much as I have learned and not know the case for the Catholic faith? And so really it began with that, and I began to become obsessed with listening to every debate I could find between Catholic and Protestant, read every article, you know, pretty much working through many, many, many of the issues. Um, the most important uh, theological issue was the issue of authority. I had already been struggling for a while, I could see, with this issue of how do I know that my interpretation is the right one? You could read Protestant writings and they would say, you know, pray that the Holy Spirit will lead you, you know, study hard, make sure you study in a correct way and God will lead you to the truth. And yet all I had to do was look around to see that in 500 years since the Reformation, there were hundreds, there were thousands of separate Protestant denominations. And in each one of these denominations, you know, possibly in each one of these churches, there was someone smarter than I was. And there was someone that prayed more than I did and asked the Holy Spirit to lead them with more sincerity than I did. And yet we disagreed. You know, we disagreed on the form of, uh, of government the church ought to have, the structure of the church. We disagreed on the doctrine of baptism, who should be baptized, what does it mean, what does it accomplish. We disagreed on the Eucharist, the Lord's table, what it meant, how it was to be done. We disagreed on salvation. What does it take to be saved? Can salvation be lost, yes or no? We disagreed on everything. And so I had begun to struggle with the realization that I was sitting in my office by myself, studying theology, studying various scholars from different traditions, deciding for myself, essentially, what the true doctrines of the Christian faith were, and then standing up at a pulpit every week and telling everybody. And, and, and knowing that they would basically accept what I said because I studied more than they did, and they were busy people with families and jobs who weren't able to keep up with my level of study. But it just didn't seem entirely correct. And so when Scott brought out the issue on his, in his conversion story that a student asked him one day, where does it actually teach in the Bible that the Bible is to function alone as our authority? That question rattled him, and that question rattled me. And so I went deep into the study of sola scriptura, scripture alone. Is it really justified? Is that what the New Testament teaches? Or is it more like what the Catholic Church says, that authority resides in the written text of scripture, but also in the oral teaching of the apostles as it was known in the early church and passed down? And then, is there an authoritative structure within the church, you know, we call within the Catholic Church the magisterium, the bishops, and the bishops in union with the Bishop of Rome in a particular way? 
Well, when I looked in the New Testament, I had to admit that that threefold structure is actually what I saw there. There was the written word of God. There was the teaching of the apostles that was viewed as authoritative. And then when the church faced its first really serious theological crisis, um, the Judaizers saying that uh, Gentile Christians must be circumcised and they must keep the, all of the traditions of Moses in order to be saved, the leadership of the church met in Jerusalem in council. And it was in a council of the Christian church, it's referred to as the Council of Jerusalem, recorded in Acts chapter 15, that a decision was made on that issue. And a letter was drafted and sent out to all the Christians announcing what the decree was or announcing what the decision was. So as I looked in the New Testament, I could see that it was scripture, it was the oral tradition of the apostles, and it was the magisterium meeting in council and making decisions when they had to be made. So the issue of authority was a big one for me, and I became convinced over time that the Catholic view was the right view. And it was the only view that could possibly result in a unified church. Hmm. Did you let Scott Hahn know the effect that he had on you? Was he shocked by your conversion? <laughs> what happened there? Yeah, Scott Hahn found out quickly because I hunted him down the very next day. And I called him on the phone. <laughs> I, I called him on the phone to say, "What in the world have you done?" You know, and um, so so right away, he and I were in conversation, and then we began to debate with each other somewhat. And then what happened was I, I just began to realize that I had a lot of learning that I wanted to do, you know, that I, that I needed to go back in a sense and I needed to learn uh, the Catholic faith and I needed to rethink my worldview from the ground floor up in terms of scripture, theology, church history. And so, uh, you know, maybe a month later I said to Scott, hey, listen, you're busy and I'm busy. Send me a list of, you know, the 10 or 20 books that you think would be the most important for someone like me. And I went off on my own then. I contacted Scott very rarely for the next two or three years, but when I did resign, uh, finally resign my position as pastor of the church to become Catholic, Scott found out through another person, and uh, this is kind of funny, so I'll, I'll tell it to you. My phone rang. I'm out here in California. Scott lives in, in, in uh, let's see, yeah, he lived in Ohio at the time. He was with Franciscan, I believe, already, Franciscan University at Steubenville. So my phone rings at like 4.30 in the morning in California, which is 7.30 where, where Scott lives, and he wasn't thinking of, this, of the time change. I pick up the phone, and I hear this voice, hello, this is Martin Luther. <laughs> what have you done? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so, you know, it was a real, it was a real crack up. And, and since then, if I can throw in one more word, Scott, Scott and I have kept in touch. Um, he and I have been on the roster together speaking at various conferences. We used to be on the roster uh, speaking at the National Catholic Family Con Conference every year out in California and we would make sure to see each other and have lunch or something and and we we talk from time to time on the phone. What kind of obstacle was infallibility and th the same question with Mary was she an obstacle to be overcome? Can you talk about infallibility and our blessed holy mother Mary? Okay, the, the issue of infallibility is always going to be somewhat, I mean, it's always going to be one of the stumbling blocks initially for a Protestant, obviously, because our view, the, the view that was so deeply ingrained into me is that infallibility resides in the Bible alone, and, and that it was pure arrogance to speak of infallibility existing or manifesting itself anywhere outside the Bible. But when I began to understand what the Catholic Church was saying about infallibility, it all began to make sense. You know, and I'm sure you know this, but I just want to restate it for the people who are listening. Infallibility resides in the church, first of all. 
Meaning, in, when all believers around the world agree on something, you, you can know that it's true. The Spirit of God resides in all of them. And then infallibility is manifested itself when the church meets in council, and that meant ecumenical council. It meant all the bishops, basically, in the world meeting to decide something. And the issue that really brought this home for me was the issue of the canon of Scripture itself, um, which I'm sure you're familiar with. But I remember, um, maybe this brings Scott back into the conversation. I don't know whether I was talking to Scott or to Jimmy Aiken, who had become kind of a friend of mine, too, um, at the time. But one of them said to me at one point, you know, listen, Ken, read about how the New Testament canon was brought together and how the decision was made as to what tw which 27 books would be included in the Christian New Testament. Because in the early centuries of the church, about 25% of what we have in our New Testament was disputed to one degree or another. Um, uh, literally six or seven of the books were disputed in one area of the church or the other. And the decision that these 27 books would be considered inspired and included in the canon is the decision that was made at a series of Catholic councils. Council of Rome in, in 382, Council of Hippo 393, Carthage 397, and a couple of others. And so I remember, I, I'll say it was Scott, Scott saying to me, Ken, do you believe that the Holy Spirit led those councils to a decision that is firm and binding? Call it infallible if you, if you want. Infallible, firm, binding, true. Do you believe it? Yes or no? And I recognized that I was sort of hung out on the horns of a dilemma because if I say yes, then Scott says to me, welcome to the Catholic Church. You know, you're essentially a Catholic. This is what Catholics believe. If I say no, I'm with Martin Luther, um, councils err, popes err, everybody errs, I can't trust necessarily the decision they made, then Scott could say to me, well, then I guess you can't even really be sure you've got the right 27 books in your Bible, in your New Testament. I guess you should go back in the mode of a good Protestant and not only decide your own interpretation, but decide ultimately your own books, your own canon, by restudying the issues, trying to figure out whether this book belongs and that one doesn't and all that. Does Hebrews belong? Second Peter, does it belong? Jude, Matthew. And so when I began to understand infallibility in a broader context like that, that it resides in the church, it's manifest in the church's magisterium when all the, the bishops meet to decide something, as they did in Acts chapter 15, and then in a particular way, as they meet around the Bishop of Rome, who holds a particularly uh, important place, and that infallibility is manifest in a peculiar way in the Bishop of Rome, but then in a very circumscribed kind of way, only when, and I'm sure you know, you know, when these conditions are met, when he is formally speaking as universal shepherd of the church, when he speaks on a matter of doctrine or morals, and he states categorically, this is the teaching of the church, then it's binding. And once I understood what it meant, and once I understood that infallibility had to exist somewhere on earth, or we're back to every man in his own interpretation of the Bible, then it all kind of fell into place for me, and I didn't have a problem with it. Okay, Mary, I can I can state a little more quickly. Mary, of course, is completely out there in in the in the space for for Protestants mostly, and especially for Protestants on the Baptist end of the spectrum, because that's more the 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 non-denominational, almost Bible-only kind of thing. And so the Marian doctrines all seemed strange to me, but again. Once the, the primary, fundamental, bottom line issue of authority was settled, then I didn't have a problem. Um, you know, I don't need to go into each Marian doctrine and try to show you where in Scripture it fits and all that. But I view there's nothing that is taught about Mary that, that is contradicted by anything in the Bible. 
much that is taught about Mary that is easily supported by things that are in the Bible. And the bottom line is, if I trust the authority of the church and uh, the church's ability to preserve the apostolic truth and to pass it down, and also to develop that truth, as John Henry Newman you know, said in his great book, Essay on the Development of Christian Doctrine, as new implications over time can be drawn out of the teaching of Scripture and the deposit of faith, then no, I had no problem. In fact, my wife understood this even before I did in a way, because early on, early on, she said, you know, Ken, the only the only really important issue is, is the issue of authority. Because she said, I remember she said, for instance, she said, if the angel Gabriel really did dictate the Quran to Muhammad, then Islam is true, and you better become a Muslim. You know, the, the issue of authority is what it is. And so if the Catholic Church really is what it claims to be and has always claimed to be, then you need to become a Catholic. You're not going to wrangle over, well, do I believe this one aspect or not? You know, or, or, or do I think it's firmly supported from the New Testament? And so that's how it came together for me. As with many converts, it took a long time for me to really get a feel for the beauty of it and the value of it. It took learning to pray the rosary and praying the rosary consistently. But I love it now. I mean, I, I view all these things as being not contradicting what I the simple truths that I learned as a Baptist and my love for Christ, my love for Scripture, salvation in Christ. I view all these things as simply filling them out and, and, and enhancing and, and making, the, making the truth that I know and believe much richer and larger and better. Nice. There is a whole cluster of questions I have. I'll sort of, I'm going to give you sort of the general idea of my, my cluster of questions and you can attack it as you want, okay? Okay. It has to do with the dogma that there's no salvation outside of the Catholic Church and Vatican II, which reiterated that dogma while also talking about our separated brethren in the Protestant churches and the Orthodox churches, although the Protestant churches aren't strictly speaking churches, but communities of believers. But Vatican II goes a long way to emphasize the fact that the church of Christ subsists in the Holy Roman Catholic Church, meaning that there are elements, saving elements, outside of her visible boundaries for example, baptism, anyone can baptize in a state of in a situation of emergency, even an atheist can baptize and it's valid. So there obviously are elements of the Catholic saving truth outside of her borders. And yet Vatican II also emphasized that there's no salvation possible outside of the Catholic Church. So I want you to talk about that. I want you to talk about ecumenism generally, our relationship with non-Catholic Christians and with non-Christian religious people and with atheists and everyone down the line. So it's a very, very broad topic that I just want you to talk about, if you would, please. Okay, first of all, um, it began experientially for me, and that is that when I came into the Catholic Church, I knew that I had been a Christian for 20 years before that. You know, the, the, there's no way that someone could have convinced me, oh, by the way, you were never a Christian and you were never saved, you know? You know, you didn't have a relationship with Christ until you became Catholic. So sort of on an experiential level, intuitively, I believed immediately that there were all sorts of Christians outside the visible confines of the Catholic Church. And then in the writings of Vatican II and in the Catechism, which quotes from them, it, you know, I found confirmation of this. And, and that's one of the passages that I really like, and I end up talking to people about quite often, the passage in the, um, in the Catechism that says this, essentially. It says, whatever guilt, I, I, I'm doing my paraphrase, my understanding, um, Whatever guilt may be assigned to those who caused the fracture in the church back in the 16th century, at the time of the Reformation, it says, we cannot assign guilt now to those who are born into these separated Christian communities 
are raised in the faith of Christ and love for scripture and whatnot, and we receive them with affection and respect as brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's the teaching of the church, and I say amen to that. Um, it goes on to say, in fact, the Holy Spirit uses these communities, these Christian communities, meaning the separated churches, Protestant churches and whatnot, uses them as means of salvation. The truths that the Protestant churches took with them, they took leaving the Catholic Church, they took from the Catholic Church and the Catholic faith and the Bible, and the Holy Spirit still uses those truths to bring people to himself, to bring people to God. So my view of um, no salvation outside the church, the point of that is to say that the salvation of Christ, or the salvation came through Christ, and the message of Christ and the doctrines of Christ were entrusted by the apostles to the church, and they exist in the church, and they've been handed down, preserved in the church, and brought down. In that sense, salvation comes through the Catholic Church, but that doesn't mean that groups that have broken off from the Catholic Church didn't take truth with them, didn't take truths with them, and so there are truths outside the Catholic Church, and there is salvation outside the Catholic Church. Again, as the Catechism says, the Holy Spirit uses these churches as means of salvation. So I want everyone to become Catholic because I want these Christians and Baptist churches, Presbyterian churches, Lutheran churches, and whatnot, I want them to enter into and to experience and to rejoice in the fullness of the Catholic faith that has been preserved, bits of which they have thrown, thrown off, and, and they've only taken other bits with them, and some of the bits they've distorted and, and are confused about, but I want them brought back in. So um, now to broaden that out, you mentioned ecumenism, to broaden that out to those who are maybe not in Christian communities at all, Muslims, Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, Sikhs, atheists, all the way out. The, the catechism speaks of invincible ignorance to the church, right? Those who through no fault of their own are raised outside the Catholic Church, and if they knew that the Catholic Church was the true church, they would want to enter it. God knows their hearts and that they can be saved as well, that they can be saved as well. And I, I take invincible ignorance. See, some people take it in a very strict sense and say what that means is that if it's, in, if it's literally impossible for you to know that the Catholic Church is the true church, then you're okay, okay? But if it's possible for you to know, you're not. And I debated with one fellow on in, in a Facebook group, in the Coming Home Network Facebook group one day, who was insisting that no one now has an excuse for not knowing that the Catholic Church is the true church. No one, because of the Internet. He said, he said you can go on the Internet now and you can find articles the, you know, and the, to prove every aspect of the Catholic faith. And I came back to him and I said, yeah. I said, but people that are growing up in the Western world now grow up confronted with a bunch of worldviews, people insisting that all of those, various people insisting that each of those worldviews is true. Now, unless you're willing to say that every single person has the responsibility then to pick up a stack of books on Buddhism, Hinduism, Jainism, you know, Sikhism, Confucianism, Islam, Christianity, you know, uh, Protestantism, Catholicism, Judaism, study them all down to the hilt, decide which ones are not true and which one is true, and become that, or they're lost. And some people do hold that position. I view that as being just insane. I think that people are invincibly ignorant now simply by virtue of the fact that there are so many choices before them, and they don't know which one's right, and the work of sorting through all of them and deciding is something beyond most people. I mean, I don't think that everyone is saved because of that, but I think that what the Catechism says is true, that God reveals himself in our consciences as he's written his law in our hearts, and those who are raised in the tradition that they're raised in, who do their best to follow that light, and with a true heart seek the truth, 
that they can be saved even if they never come to know that um, the Catholic Church is the true church, or I would say even if they never come to know that Christianity is true. Mm. Yeah, I agree with everything you've said so far. So I want to ask you something personal about Luther. What do you think of him as a man? Recently, the Catholic Church, I thought, went a little bit too far by celebrating the anniversary of the Reformation. I don't want to focus so much on that stance that the Church took, although if you have some insight, I'd love to hear it. But what do you make of the man Luther? I just recently listened to some Anglican lectures by a professor that's a big, 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 big fan of Luther, and I actually was warming up a little bit to Luther's theology. Can you just talk a little bit about your impression of Luther, the human being Luther? Sure. It's interesting because when, when the Protestant world was celebrating a year ago the 500th anniversary of the, of the Protestant Reformation, and Martin Luther you know, nailing his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg on the last day of October of 1517, I was in Germany traveling with a group through Germany and lecturing on Martin Luther and the Reformation from a Catholic point of view. So um, Luther is someone that I've read a lot about and have spoken about a lot, and I've got audio tapes and whatnot that are on that subject. Um, I really loved Luther as a Protestant for many, many, many years. For one thing, Luther is a fantastic read. He's super bright, super colorful in his writing. So uh, he's the kind of person you could you, you could be reading him and laughing half half the time just because of the illustrations he uses and the ways he describes things. But I think that Luther was a troubled person. Luther describes his upbringing as being a troubled upbringing. Uh, he describes his parents as being extremely harsh with him. He had a situation with his father where he felt that he could never, ever please his father and make his father happy. And it's hard for me to not see how this kind of carried over into his relationship with God because Luther had this feeling that no matter what he did, no matter how hard he tried, he could not believe that God accepted him. He could not believe that God loved him. And some Protestants like to take that and turn it around and say, well, there you go. That's Catholic theology for you. It's Catholicism that taught him that God basically hates you and there's nothing you can do about it. And, and, you know, you know. But that's not true. There are plenty of people who, who were Catholics at the time who understood and knew God's love for them. In fact, one of them was the vicar general of the Augustinian order that Luther belonged to, uh, Johann von Staupitz. He is known to have count, counseled Luther. He was Luther's confessor for many years. And he, was, and he struggled mightily with trying to get Martin Luther, soon, I mean, Father Martin Luther, who had become a priest and became a scholar, Dr. Martin Luther, to get to get him to to understand God's love for him and to believe it, and he was frustrated with um, Luther's inability to see that. So, I view Luther as coming from a place in which he had a distorted conception of what Catholic theology really teaches about salvation, because he was viewing it through through the lens of his own personal struggles. And I believe that he came to his view of justification. I don't want to go off into the details of it, but he came to his view of justification by faith alone as a way of answering his own struggles, you know, to realize that by faith alone, simply looking to the cross of Christ, that he would receive everything that he needed and that it wasn't about him needing to struggle, to obey, to fight the good fight of faith or anything like that, was something so wonderful to him that he said it was like the, the doors to paradise had been swung open and he walked through and he was a free man. And so I view him as, as coming to his basic view of salvation, um, a distorted view ba based, on, based on the fact that he was viewing it through the lens of his own psychological need and experience, 
but then the re the rest of it kind of followed because the church rejected what he was saying, and he felt pushed away, and uh, this his collaboration or or his discussions with the church didn't go well. And when the church finally demanded that he recant of his views, then then he just pushed away and rejected the authority of the church entirely. And then he just kind of went, in my view, he went off the deep end because very soon, I mean, within two years or so, he's calling the Pope the Antichrist. I mean, two years before, he was saying that he would gladly submit to the Pope if the Pope would understand his view of salvation. Two years later, the Pope's the Antichrist. All the bishops and cardinals and priests are a bunch of demons, and he's calling on all monks to break their vows and leave the monasteries and the nuns to break their vows and leave the convents. And um, he's, he's basically writing the crest of an entire rev revolution. Wow. What is the Catholic teaching on free will? Are we libertarian free will or compatibilist free will? I know we don't subscribe to determinism. Uh, I was just reading a little book about Calvin and uh, Wesley and these different Protestant interpretations of free will. What is the official Catholic position? If you can speak in very precise philosophical terms, that would be even better. Um, I don't know if I can. That's not an area of expertise for me. Um, but um, determinism, yes, off the table. Compatibilism, though, is a term that is usually used by atheists, right? Yeah. You know, and trying to... Have their cake and eat it, too. <laughs> yeah, and in the minds of atheistic neurobiologists, neuroscience and whatnot, what it actually means, it seems to me, is determinism baptized with some sweeter words, you know, because, because in the end, electrochemical processes in the brain are seen, are viewed as really determining everything, physical law, chemical law, whatnot, determining everything. But then they want to view um, freedom as kind of a, an emergence of that. But I'm not sure how much reality it has. So I'm not sure if I can speak too much beyond that. So if you look back at the major heresies of Christian history, we can see a pattern of where the heretical views were always propounded by those who were not willing to hold a mystery in tension and, and, and felt that they were required to rationally resolve the tension in one way or another. Take the doctrine of the Trinity. The heresies at the time fell to one side or the other. Uh, there were those who wanted to rationally resolve the idea of the Trinity in the direction of three. And they would say, hey, listen, let's just be honest. There are three gods. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe in three gods. They were the tritheists. On the other side were those who tried to rationally resolve the teaching of the church in the direction of oneness. And they said, hey, come on, let's face the fact. There's one God, and this one God simply manifests himself or simply appears in various forms. Appears as the Father sometimes, the Son sometimes, the Spirit sometimes. And they were called the modalists who believe that God appears in modes. One God appearing in various modes. And when the church met in councils, though, to hammer out the doctrine of the Trinity, they came out saying no. The Trinity is a mystery, and we must hold it in tension. God exists as I mean, one, one in essence, eternally existing as three divine persons. You tritheists are wrong on the one side, and you modalists are wrong on the other side. Well, when we, when we step forward or backward in time to the doctrines concerning Christ's human and divine natures, we see the same thing. All of the heresies surrounding Christology were propounded by those who, again, felt the need to rationally resolve the issue in one way or another. So they would say, Jesus was really a man who just appeared to be God. The, the Holy Spirit descended on him in a special way, but he was a man, and that was one set of heresies. On the other side were those who said, no, Jesus was God, and he just appeared to be a man, the docetus. He just appeared to suffer. He appeared to have a human body. He appeared to eat and drink, but he really didn't. And again, as the church, the Catholic church, in councils, 
hammered out what the truth was that had been received from the apostles and preserved in the church's tradition. They said, no, we hold Christ as a mystery. He is 100% God, 100% man, and the heresies on both sides again were thrown out. And my, my sense is that the church's teaching on uh, predestination and free will is the same, where the heresies are always those who have to ra rationally resolve. And so like the Calvinists, for instance, or the, the radical Calvinists, would resolve it in the direction of predestination and God's sovereignty. And every single thing is ordained and ruled by God, and freedom ends up being an illusion. Um, and then on the other side, there are those who emphasize free will, and God's just wringing his hands and hoping things turn out all right, but has no control. My view is that this, again, is a mystery that is only resolvable in the mind of God, and, and we hold them together. And so what I say is that God is in control of the universe. God's will is being done. God is sovereign over all things, and we are truly free. We truly make decisions. And so I, I guess I would have to say that the Christian doctrine of free will is libertarian free will, or is, is closer to libertarian free will than it is to compatibilism, definitely not determinism. But that in some mysterious way, God controls the flow of history, God's will is done in history, and yet it's done through the secondary causes which are entirely free. You know, the soldiers were free to pick up the nails, and they were free to lay Jesus on the cross, and they were free to pound the nails through his hands and to kill him, and yet it was ordained from all eternity that he be, that he be crucified. One of the most touching things I've ever read about Mary is that if the soldiers had refused to do it, then she would have picked up the hammer and nails and done it herself. Oh, oh my. Well, that, that's an evocative thought. I had never thought of that before. That was St. Alphonsus Liguori. I mean, there's no way to get around the fact that Jesus wept over Jerusalem and he said, how often I would have gathered you, but you would not. And then the scripture also says, I mean, Jesus also said, no one can come to the Father but through me, and, and unless the Spirit draws him, no one can come to the Father. So I hold the two in mystery, and I think that's the Catholic view. For sure. Talk to me, if you would, just a little bit about what you do day to day, what you're excited about, and uh, what sort of Catholic work are you doing on the ground? Well, this is something I'm, <laughs> I'm excited to talk about, and there are reasons. Um, one of the reasons is that when I left the ministry at the age of 42, I'm 64 now, when I left the ministry at the age of 42, I had a family, I had a mortgage, I lost my income, I lost my occupation, and although I imagined at the time that a master's degree in theology would take me far in the business world, I found out that it's worth nothing. Anyway, whether I made the best decisions or whether I didn't, I wound up for 18 years, David, working um, other jobs. I waited tables for a while. I became a headhunter in the biotech world as an independent 100% commission headhunter, trying to find people for companies and whatnot. And then I became a stockbroker, and I was a stockbroker for eight years. Again, 100% commission life. But my point in saying that is that, that I went to Bible college because I loved the study of scripture and theology, and I wanted to be in the ministry. I went to seminary for the same reason. And then I found myself, because I became Catholic, I found myself, in a sense, thrown out of all formal and official ministry for 18 years straight, um, except that I was asked to speak at conferences kind of on a fairly regular basis, and I did some teaching in parishes, and I spoke at conferences and whatnot, but mainly I worked in the regular, I guess, you know, just as a layman in the regular world for 18 years, and so I truly didn't think I would ever be back into full-time um, pastoral ministry again, 
And so this is why I'm so excited uh, that I was hired by the Coming Home Network. And I've been, I've been with the Coming Home Network for two and a half years now. The Coming Home Network, so many Protestant, uh, so, so many converts feel when they become Catholic that they've come home. That's a typical phrase that they feel like after searching and bouncing around and so many have gone, many go through five, six, seven different denominations, always trying to figure out who has it right. Just this real feeling that they have come home to the historic Christian church when they become Catholic. The Coming Home Network was begun by another convert. His name is Marcus Grodi, who was a Presbyterian minister who became Catholic about 27 years, years ago, I think. And he just started a little newsletter at the time because he realized there were others that were going through what he was going through and Protestant ministers resigning and having to figure out how to reinvent themselves and all that. He started a little newsletter that would try to network some of these people together to help each other, to pray for each other. And this became the Coming Home Network. It blew up some when Mother Angelica asked Marcus to start a show that has been on EWTN now for about 25 years called The Journey Home. And what it is is an hour-long interview where Marcus is the host, and he interviews a convert to the Catholic faith. And it's an hour-long interview, so it's you know it's somewhat in-depth. And um, there are people coming from Judaism, people coming from atheism, people coming from every one of the you know varieties of, of, of Protestantism and evangelical faith. And he interviews them. And anyway, um, I was hired by the Coming Home Network two and a half years ago. And I work on the pastoral care staff. Um, I work on the website as well. So I'm partly responsible for some of the design of the website, for a lot of the content, especially the theological resources and whatnot that go into the website. Um, but I would say the main thing that I do is, um, is pastoral care. I believe it was in 2017, I don't know the number for this year yet, but we had over 200 ordained Protestant ministers contact the Coming Home Network. 200 ordained Protestant ministers contacting the Coming Home ne Network, basically with some level of interest about Catholicism. All the way from, I just read a book and I'm curious, or I just listened to a, a, you know, a recorded conversion story and I'm curious, all the way to, I've been studying the Catholic faith and I'm convinced that it's true, help me. <laughs> because I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to have to resign my ministry. And many, many of these, not all of them, but many, because we have several others on staff, but many of them are funneled through to me. And my job is to make contact with them, um, to befriend them, and to try to help them in any way that I can. Answering questions, leading them to good resources, and often just providing more moral support. I'll give you one illustration that is current right now. I spent about an hour and a half on Skype with a Presbyterian pastor in Brazil a week ago who is studying the Catholic faith and is very strongly coming to the realization that the Catholic Church is what it claims to be and that he needs to become Catholic. And he's just facing the terrifying decision of how to, how to do this, how to tell my people, how to tell my supporters. Uh, he's fearful because so many people are going to be discouraged by what he does. Many of them may reject him entirely. Some will say that he's been taken captive by the devil, and he's in the middle of that right now. So that's mainly what I spend my time doing all day long. I guess I could summarize it as my job is to help people to come to see the truth and beauty of the Catholic faith, and I spend my days um, trying to help people come home. Do you have more rapport with Baptists or no? Well, it's natural for me to understand them better than others. So I guess you could say the rapport is easier and more natural because they understand me too. Or let's put it this way. When they speak to me, they know they're talking to someone who can understand them. But my position requires me to understand Methodist and Methodist theology, Anglicanism, Lutheran, Presbyterian, everybody. Wow. 
very exciting. I'm very, uh, I'm very proud of you and uh, the whole network. And uh, I love Marcus Grodi and Mother Angelica. And uh, the Pope said she's in heaven already, so that's pretty cool. Well, you should tell people then, although I guess I'm doing it right now, that they should come to the Coming Home Network website if they are lifelong Catholics and they want to know how they can help other converts along. Joining the Coming Home Network is a way to be in ministry. And joining the online community with the Coming Home Network that you have joined is a way for those who are Catholic now to, to reach out to and support and to help all kinds of people who are still on the journey in, into the Catholic Church. We have retreats that we do from time to time that are wonderful retreats for converts and for those on the journey. This next year, in fact, we're having our very first Deep in History Coming Home Network pilgrimage to Italy to study the history of the Catholic Church in Rome. And I'm going to be a part of leading that. Marcus Grodi and, and I and um, Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson, a wonderful priest, are going to be leading that trip next September to Rome to study the history of the Catholic Church. And this is something that converts, you know, can just fall in love with the idea of the first time going to Rome and seeing the Vatican and, and learning about so much there in the area. So we'll be doing that. It really is amazing. So um, this is a question that I do ask faithful Catholics. It's a little bit off-putting. You don't have to answer it if you don't want to. What would it take for you to abandon Jesus Christ? Most of our knowledge is not, it's not knowledge like 2 plus 2 equals 4. It's not proof. It's a coming together of many, many, many probabilities. And there are so many things that come together now and have come together over the years to convince me that Christianity is true and that Christ is who he claimed to be. There's so many things. And these are intellectual, but they're also experiential things. My worldview is built up by, it's like a big brick building, and there are many, many bricks that go into building it and putting it all together. And if someone come, comes along and pulls one brick out, it, it doesn't change the building, you know. They'd have to pull out enough bricks to where the walls start to collapse in some way. And so, but truthfully, I have never thought, you know, what is the one thing? You know, there's no way anybody's going to turn up the bones of Jesus, and it's not going to be printed on there. And even if neuroscience were to to show, and I don't think they can at all. But but even if neuroscience, atheistic neuroscientists were to somehow attempt to prove that the that the mind and the brain are absolutely the same thing, and that there is nothing to you beyond um, synapses firing in that pile of mush in your skull. I don't even think that would do it because I, God can use the physical world as a secondary cause and be operating through it. And God is spirit, and and God creates human spirits. And so I, it, I don't see anything. Nothing so. convincing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. The <laughs> the the one example that I give to atheists that ask me that question is the bones of Jesus, the bones of Mary. But it is true. I agree with you. It's a network. It's a web of things that point together to the truth of Catholicism. And there's no one thing that would do it for me. And like you said, if they did claim to have the bones of Jesus, I would, you know, it would take a lot to convince me. Uh, I want to talk about sexual morality. A lot of people uh, poo-poo the church. They think the church is obsessed with sex, when really the reason that a lot of people refuse to enter the church is because they're in love with their own sexual proclivities. Can you talk about that aspect of conversion? Does it play a role, or is it something that people feel relieved once they come into the church, that they can try to be pure for Christ, and that they can try to be chaste, and it becomes a joy rather than a burden? Can you just talk in general terms about conversion to the Catholic Church, human sexuality, and uh, what that struggle is like? Okay. I would say that it's that it's a 
it, it's a joy to become a, a Catholic, to become a Christian, and then to begin to realize that God made you to live a certain way in your life in general, in your sexual life, your your sexuality as, as a part of that, to strive to be what God created you to be is a joy and it's a freedom. Because any false path is a burden. Jesus said all those who sin are slaves to sin. And whether it's an addiction to pornography, that's a slavery. Breaking from that and becoming the pure, chaste person God wants you to be, to use Luther's phrase, that's like walking through open gates into paradise. Most people kind of know in their heart of hearts that that's not good and it's not right and it's not it's not good, for instance, to treat people like objects. Um, it's good. It's not good to be having multiple sexual relationships with people that you're not committed to for life. Becoming a Christian is not taking this burden upon me like, oh my, I can't do this anymore. I got to stop doing that. Oh, it was so great to be able to commit these sexual sins. Now I have to stop. No, it's exactly the reverse. Because again, I have been created in the image and likeness of God. There is such a thing as manhood, and, and God is the one who designed it. And when I become a Christian, then I begin to look to him to tell me what it is to be a true man. And that includes a lot of things, being loving, being prudent, being temperate, being courageous, but it also means being pure, being chaste. And when I begin to strive to live out what God has created me to be, it's freedom. Each step toward that is a step toward freedom, and every step away from that is a step into bondage. And so so um, I think that that view is entirely wrong. When people just look at the Catholic faith and they oh, my word, you can't do this, you can't do that. It's just laying all these burdens on you. It's exactly the opposite way around. And of course, God created us with sexuality too. That's a, that's a part of our nature, but it but it has to be fulfilled in the right way to be truly meaningful and good. So, um, at the end of my interviews, I do ask my guests to close the show with a nice little thought, something positive for the listener, a little message of hope. So, what could you say just to end the show? One of the things that is most precious to me about the Catholic faith, the Christian faith, is the truth that I am not a biochemical machine. <laughs> driven purely by physical and chemical laws and whatnot, that there is a God, that God exists, that God loves me, that God created me in his image and likeness, and that God wants me in relationship with him. And I guess I would say to people out there, I, I know that there are a lot of examples that are poor examples, at least in your, in your estimation, poor examples of what a Christian is, maybe poor examples of what the Catholic Church is. Look at the crisis that we're going through because of so much sin in the priesthood, in the bishopric, and I know that many just may have a very neg negative impression. And I guess I just encourage you, you know, it is Christianity that teaches that the human race has fallen and that, and that, and that we're capable of sin. The, I wouldn't want the sinfulness of people to uh, block you from looking into the truth claims of the Christian faith. Jesus really did exist. Jesus really did teach the things that we say he taught. Jesus really did perform miracles. He lived, he died, he was crucified, he rose again from the dead, and you really can have a relationship with God through Christ. And I encourage you, if you have doubts about that, I mean, pick up some books and look into it. Read C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, and try to answer the things that he says in there. It's a great book. And that's the one thing I want to say to you, I guess. If you like your worldview, if you think it's swell, if you've got some questions, ask me and I'll tell. All you've got to do is ask. All you've got to do is ask.